welcome everyone to Osteobites. So happy to see you here. My name is Christina Iptoma. I am mom to Osteo Angel Dylan, and I'm the director of scientific programs for MIB agents. And today on Osteobites, we are talking with Dr. Michelle Gert of McMaster University. Dr. Gert will be sharing results from the prophylactic antibiotic regimens in tumor surgery, otherwise known as PARITY, an international randomized control trial, which is the first ever prospective randomized trial in orthopedic oncology. And we have junior advisory board members, Vicki and Andrew as our panelists today. Just a heads up before we start that Dr. Gert's presentation today will include intraoperative images. So in case you get queasy from those, you might wanna just listen to the audio. We are very excited to have Dr. Gert on Osteobites today. She is a full professor in the Department of Surgery, Division of Orthopedic Surgery at McMaster University. She's the director of Mac Ortho Research and co-chair of the Sarcoma Disease Site at the Juravinsky Cancer Center in Hamilton. And she completed her undergraduate and medical degrees at Stanford University and Vanderbilt University respectively. She trained in orthopedic surgery at Duke University and completed a two-year fellowship in orthopedic oncology at the University of Toronto. She's been on the faculty at McMaster since 2005. Dr. Gert has been selected to the presidential line of the Musculoskeletal Tumor Society and will be the president-elect in October of this year. Dr. Gert's other research interests include the promotion of diversity and inclusion within the orthopedic surgery workplace. And then before we get started, I just had a couple of events that we wanted to share with you. Um, for those of you in the Boston area, we invite you to join us for our first ever Mingle event of 2022. We promise it will be fun and there will be free drinks and appetizers. Everyone in the osteosarcoma community is invited. It's kind of like osteobites, but without the um, speaker um, and a lot more conversation. We'll put the invitation and registration link in the chat. Um, and you can please share it with everyone you know in the Boston area. While we're there that weekend, we're also gonna be hosting a Healing Hearts Retreat for bereaved osteosarcoma parents on April 1st. Please email Casey. Um, we'll also put her email in the chat for more details um, and we'll put you in touch with her. And we'd like to thank our sponsor of this episode, BTG Specialty Pharmaceuticals. BTG provides rescue medicines typically used in emergency rooms and intensive care units to treat patients for whom there are limited treatment options. They are dedicated to delivering quality medicines that make a real difference to patients and their families through the development, manufacture, and commercialization of pharmaceutical products. Their current portfolio of antidotes counteracts certain snake venoms and the toxicity associated with some heart and cancer medications. Their drug, Viraxase, is for high-dose methotrexate toxicity. Um, all right, Vicki, do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself? Yeah, hi everyone. My name is Vicki Hoy, and I was diagnosed in July of this year, and I am currently still going through treatment, but hopefully we'll be finalizing and beating cancer by May. Um, I will be starting at Villanova University in the fall. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, hi, my name is Andrew. I'm a junior in high school and a survivor. I was diagnosed four years ago, um, and now I'm a junior board member. 
Thank you. Um, thank you for that incredible introduction. And I just want to say that this is an honor to be speaking to this group. My, I and my research group are very, very impressed, deeply impressed with your, your uh, community, your organization. And we're really glad that actually helped us learn about your organization after you reached out to me. So um, we, we love working with patients. We really want to know um, what your experiences are so that we can make your care better. So um, and I'm going to be presenting the results of a trial. There are some scientific elements to what I'm going to say, um, but I will try to make it as clear as possible to those of you who are not physicians. And also, I would very much like to explain that this trial is, you know, is one of many that's published on a daily basis in journals, but there's, there's some things that are special about it. Uh, one, it's for people like you. Uh, it's, it will help guide treatment for people with osteosarcoma. And also, uh, it was the first time that people in my field, so you guys have had surgeons, and the surgeons uh, work, they don't work together so much in research because, it, you know, as you know, osteosarcoma is very rare. And so they, you end up working just in your center. But if you really want to do a trial and answer some really important research questions, you need to actually work as a team, not just with those in your center, but and not even those in your region or country, you really need to go international because these tumors are so rare that, that we, it's hard to find out what the right thing to do is if you don't have the data or evidence. So yes, I will be describing the PARITY trial or the prophylactic antibiotic regimens in tumor surgery trial. I am presenting on behalf of the Parity Investigators, which is a very, very large group. I would like to thank the sponsors of this study. You can see from the fairly long list of, of funders that a major aspect of being an academic uh, surgeon or, or physician is the uh, attempt at finding funding to, to do your research. And so we, we, we spent a lot of our time writing uh, grants. And so uh, I'm very grateful to these uh, funding agencies and also to highlight Silver Hearts Foundation, which was actually a patient um, patient advocacy group that had funded uh, this study. So why did we do this study? When we do uh, limb salvage surgery or surgery where we save the leg and don't have to amputate the leg, and we have to replace the take the bone that was resected with a big metal implant. And you can see on this x-ray that there are some changes, especially at the femur at the top, where it looks like it might be loosening. And why would that happen? That's usually because of infection. So why are the infection rates so high with the surgeries that we do? It's Part of it's because the patients are immunocompromised because as you know, um, you're on chemotherapy and that affects your immune system. Uh, and also these are big long surgeries and the implants are, the metal surface is very comfortable for bacteria to, to set up their, their shop there. So there's lots of things um, affecting and against us in trying to prevent infections. So, so what is the actual infection rate? How often does this happen? So we did a systematic review, which is where we scoured the literature to see what was reported so far. And you can see that in retrospective studies, so these are not trials, these are just people writing up their experience at their individual centers. The infection rate was 10%. And you know, 10% is it's not 90, it's, it seems like it's low. But if you consider the fact that 
they are disastrous and very difficult complications, this is very high. If a patient has a total hip or knee replacement you know, for arthritis, the infection is less than 1% risk. So this is very high. So uh, if you have an infection, you might need to be on antibiotics a long time. You might have, you'll have to have multiple surgeries to try to get rid of the, of the bacteria. And you often end up with an amputation after, after a long journey of trying to eradicate the infection. This can affect your function and your quality of life. And if you have an infection and you need to be on chemotherapy, you might be able to not be able to have the chemotherapy because you're actively infected. So these are things that we really, really try to avoid. So how do we do that? Well, we know that if patients get intravenous antibiotics around the time of their surgery, so within an hour before the surgery starts, the risk of infection decreases. So we know that perioperative antibiotics are critical. If you're going to have a knee or hip replacement, the uh, recommendations by the various associations in orthopedics generally recommend 24 hours, maybe up to 36 hours of antibiotics after surgery. This is not the dose that you get while you're in surgery. This is after. So um, we asked the surgeons in the field that do what we do, uh, do you prescribe 24 hours like the surgeons that do hip and knee replacements or do you do something else? And you can see from this, this uh, slide that surgeons are all over the place. Um, about a third will give 24 hours based on what they know about the hip and knee literature, but many will go much longer, even over a week. And some, some people go longer than a week. So this is a lot of antibiotics for those people. And um, the reason why we do that, or some of us do that is because we really don't want to have infections. So, but you have to balance that with you know, our antibiotics bad in some ways, or do we need to make sure we, we practice antibiotic stewardship, which means we, we minimize the chance of bacteria becoming resistant. The more antibiotics we give, the more chance that they will become resistant. So this is, goes back to the point that I brought up before I started. Um, we looked at the level one evidence in the field. And level one evidence means studies that are done as a trial, prospective trial, meaning you randomize patients. It's a lot of organizations, a tremendous amount of work. And how much of that evidence do we have in our field? And there weren't any of these trials that we could find in a systematic review. And so in that survey that we found out how much surgeons give antibiotics, we asked, would you participate in a trial? Even though we've never done one, would you participate to find out what the best thing to do for our patients is? And almost 90% said yes. So this was something that thought made us think, well, okay, let's go ahead and let's do this. It's never been done, but you know, there are all other surgical specialties and medical oncologists and uh, cardiology, all the different types of doctors do trials. So this is something that's time for us to, uh, to at least start thinking about doing, if not moving on it. So the objective of the parity trial was to determine if long duration or five days of antibiotics intravenously after surgery reduced surgical site infections compared to 24 hours. So uh, and this is in patients that are having a tumor resection of the femur or tibia and that are having an endoprosthetic reconstruction. Endoprosthetic means the big metal implants that are used to replace the bone that was taken out. So this study was designed by a group of experts in various fields. There's orthopedic oncology, 
but also we had to have infectious disease experts work with us and explain what the how long antibiotics were reasonable. We thought maybe one week for the longer arm, but the, they felt that it was that was not reasonable. It was too long. We need people to help us design a, a randomized trial. So uh, we had uh, specialists in cl cl clinical epidemiology and surgical trials, and also biostatistics. So this, even from the very beginning, this was a large group figuring out how to move forward. So it was a so we designed the study to be international because, as I mentioned, we need to have lots of sites involved, um, and it would be multi-center and randomized parallel arm design. That means there'll be two groups, and the patients will be allocated uh, by a randomization program online. Meaning, I can't choose what my patients would have. I would have to uh, just log into the randomization system and the and the the. Um, randomization system that has been developed to balance everything out at each site would tell me what arm. Now, I didn't do that because um, it was the pharmacist at each site that randomized the patient and shrouded the bags because it's important to blind anybody taking care of the patient to the outcome. This is because if I knew how much antibiotics the patient was getting, I might change my uh, opinion of how their wound is looking. I would just be affected by knowing too much. It's better to uh, to focus on their care and um, all the other factors that are important as opposed to being um, stuck on what antibiotics they're on. Blinding is something that uh, is considered fairly critical to randomized trials. It basically over overcomes a lot of important biases. However, it's not always possible, but in this case, it was a possibility. So when you're determining if infection occurs, it's not always straightforward because some patients have an obvious infection with you know, their, their febrile, they got redness, they got pus. Um, sometimes it's just, it's, it's more subtle. So we needed a committee to look at each of the cases of infection and to determine whether it actually did occur or not. Now this, this central adjudication committee was saw the data, saw the information, but were blinded to whether the patients were in the one or five day regimen. So this was important because at the end of the study, we had, I, we had to feel comfortable that the decision on whether an infection occurred or not was not based on whether they had a lot of antibiotics or just a little. Also, we had to make sure that the patients were safe. So we had an independent data safety and monitoring board. And uh, this, this uh, committee is independent of the study and was the only group that saw the actual data of the both groups uh, that were unblinded. So they, uh, at, in at intervals, they met yearly and that quarterly reviewed all of the data to make sure that there was no concern related to one of the one of the arms uh, was doing too much 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 better than the other. So uh, this study was organized at McMaster. You can see the blue box, but we did coordinate with a lot of people. So we coordinated with the Data and Safety Monitoring Board, the Central Adjudication Committee, and the Steering Committee, all the committees that I described. Plus, we also coordinated with the participating sites. So in the trial, patients were randomized to cephalosporin or cefazolin or cefurexime. These are antibiotics that we know are the best against the, the bacteria that tend to infect 
the arms and legs in reconstruction surgery. So uh, the regimen one, the patient received the antibiotics for one day and then four days of placebo, meaning they, they had an injection of saline, but they didn't know that because it was blinded. Uh, the, other, the other regimen was five full days. So a total of an extra 12 uh, more doses because they were at eight hours, eight, every eight hours. So this is this in this group patients received five full days of intravenous antibiotics every eight hours. So who were in this trial? So they were patients that had primary bone tumors like osteosarcoma. And there are also some soft tissue sarcomas that can eat through bone just the way osteosarcoma does. And they could have been included if they were undergoing the procedures that osteosarcoma patients undergo. There's also uh, patients that have metastatic bone disease from other organs, such as renal cell cancer. And if they are undergoing a similar kind of surgery, then they would be eligible. So the primary outcome, meaning what we were really looking for, was a surgical site infection that occurred within one, one year of the date of surgery. We use the CDC classification, and this does end at one year after surgery, after which an infection is not considered to be related to the actual surgery. Dr. Gert, I just have a question yeah. there for you on yeah. timing. Is there any correlation yeah. between time post-surgery and risk of an infection? So are you more, you know, is it within the first month that you're most likely to develop infection? Does that risk decrease over time? Or yeah, that's a, it, it's a great question. And what we did find, and I'll show a graph, most of the infections were earlier on. It's not the next day. It's not a week later. It tends to be a month to two or three months later. There were some later infections. And um, that's a really good question. And our, our outcome was a time-dependent analysis, meaning uh, the, the, the amount of the time taken to get infection was also taken into consideration. So uh, does that answer your question? Yes, yes, thank you. Okay, great, okay. So uh, th there were um, many data points collected for each patient. And so that you need a really robust data management system that was managed centrally at McMaster. And you could only see, each site could only uh, see the data for their own patients. So even though McMaster had uh, access to all of the data, it was all blinded. So, um, uh, this is important that you collect the data prospectively because if you, meaning if you just ask the site two years later, oh, what did you do for this patient and what kind of surgery did they have, then they're not going to remember. And even the medical records generally are not very helpful. So it's very important to add the data to the database right away. That way, you know, you have data that is correct, accurate, and timely. So we had to work with each of the sites to make sure that the data was accurate, valid, and timely, so that there were four levels of data validation. So there's a lot of communication back and forth with the sites to make sure that they're, they're keeping up with their data, um, so that at the end of the study, after the years of the study, we didn't have to go back to the medical charts, which would, which would result in data that you, you don't feel so comfortable with. So this was truly an international collaboration. Um, the majority of the sites were in North America, but we had sites uh, in Africa. We had Europe, South America, and uh, Asia, as well as uh, Australia. 
So um, this was really truly international. There were 55 clinical sites that went through the startup process, meaning they were able to get through ethics approval and contract negotiations with our site. Um, and 48 of those 55 ended up enrolling at least one patient. This was across 12 countries, across six continents, and there were over 150 investigators working on this. So uh, you can see from this graph, the, the, the blue bars are the enrollment at each site per month. So that is, you can see overall over the course of from January 2013 until September 2019, so this is six years uh, at least, that uh, the enrollment basically increased. There were some months, particularly near the end, that we had lots of enrollment, and there were some that were less. And this, this is pretty standard for any trial. Um, but overall, you can see there's a trend towards more enrollment. And that's because the gold bar, gold uh, line, shows the number of sites that were collaborating. So you can see at the beginning, it was less, a little drop off. And then, then, then when people realized the trial was actually happening, they wanted to participate. So we were happy to have more and more sites work with us. And that's why the enrollment, that's why we were able to do this study because of that gold line showing that people said, okay, let's all work together. Let's do it. And so after a very long period of time, uh, we finally uh, finished all the follow-up of one year in October of 2019. Oh, sorry, that was, I need to move this. Enrollment completed in October 2019. 2020 uh, is when we finished actual follow-up, but then because of the pandemic, there was some delay in getting the final data from some of the sites. So we finally finished uh, all of the data accumulation in early 2021. So these are the results. We had 611 patients that were enrolled. So they were randomized and it was uh, 312 or, and to the 24 hour regimen and 299 to the five day. So it was ab about equal. The reason why they're not exactly equal is because some of the sites did not enroll uh, very many patients and the randomization system was programmed um, to balance um, each patient at the site with another at the site. So if you only enrolled one patient or three patient, there would be an imbalance, but this is uh, considered acceptable given the large number of overall patients. Uh, seven patients were reviewed by the adjudication committee and found to be ineligible. And again, this adjudication committee was blinded. And so they were removed. So we had 604 patients that were included in the analysis that it was 311 and 293. The randomization system did a phenomenal job of, of making the uh, baseline characteristics or risk factors in each group equal. So that includes patient age, gender, race, location of the tumor, comorbidities, and a surgical variable, such as the time in surgery and the uh, amount of soft tissue removed, um, the amount of bone removed, and various other factors. So we wanted to see if patients actually stuck to the regimen that they were randomized to. And it, we, if you don't, if you go to the other side, it's called a crossover. So this actually was very uncommon. Only two patients crossed over and those that went from the 24 to the five day regimen. So the other thing is that we found that there was, there was a decent number of patients that left the hospital before five days and you can't get intravenous infusions at home 
in general, unless it's 100% necessary. So, and this was not considered, you know, for a trial in the real world, we weren't going to either keep patients in the hospital or send them home with an IV uh, just for one or two doses. So, uh, however, we were happy to find that the majority, about 83, 84% received at least four days, and that was equal between groups. Um, so, oh, sorry. Okay, so the primary outcome, infections, 15.9% of patients had at least one surgical site infection. So that is even higher than what we had thought it was going to be. And so this one finding in the study is that these indeed are very common complications. So um, in between the two groups, there were 52 of 311 or 16.7% in uh, of patients in the 24-hour regimen had an infection. And in the five-day regimen, 44 of 293, or 15%. So as I mentioned before, we calculated the hazard ratio. That's a time-dependent risk outcome. And that determined that there was no difference. So all those statistics and all those, those, those uh, p-values and confidence intervals indicates that, that there was really no statistical difference. Um, if a hazard ratio is one, it means there exactly is no difference. However, you know, there's a little bit, there's a little bit of noise in the system there. We're not sure 100%, but we're very, fairly close. And you can see from this graph, the number of every time uh, the graph drops a bit, a patient has had an infection. So you can see that the infections are more common in the first three months and then level out. But if you look at the green and the blue uh, lines, you can see that really there's nothing that there that will tell you that there's a major difference between the groups. So we did want to see if there were different types of infections that were different between groups, uh, whether they were superficial, deep, or organ space. Those are the different uh, depths of the infections, and again, there was no difference. We also did uh, sensitivity analyses. These are done to make sure that you're comfortable with the results and you, you take into account things such as death and amputation because patients that are no longer alive or have had an amputation cannot get an infection. So that's what we call sensitivity or, or competing risk analysis. And um, also per protocol, meaning the patients that crossed over versus those that, that stayed in their group. And all of those sensitivity analyses showed us that we were comfortable with the results. We also did subgroup analysis as meaning wonder, you know, were men more likely to do better with five days? Were osteosarcoma more likely to do better with five days? And there was no difference between the treatment groups. Now, these are subgroup analyses, and the study may, is not powered or it's not directed at answering these questions. So these, these can only be hypothesis generating. It doesn't really give you a definitive answer. We did look at, in fact, at antibiotic related complications, and this is something that was also adjudicated. So 7% um, of patients had a, an antibiotic related complication. And this is a complication for which they were uh, admitted to the hospital or had to go some, uh, um, under some intervention. Therefore, these are fairly serious antibiotic related complications. 7% is not, it's, it's, ha it's a ha almost half. Um, the number of infections, however, they are very serious. They were significantly more common in the patient group that got five days. So they 5.1% of patients in that group had a serious antibiotic-related complication versus 1.6% in the 24-hour. And the hazard ratio is well above one in this, uh, even with the confidence intervals, meaning we're at least 95% confident 
that um, there's a significantly higher risk in that group. The most common complication was C. diff-associated colitis and also uh, other types of diarrhea. So C. diff-colitis is very uh, serious condition that requires long-term antibiotics and has a significant risk of relapse as well. Why does C. diff colitis occur? Well, the antibiotics that you get intravenously affect the microbiome or the, the happy coexistence of the multiple bacteria in the colon and the GI tract. And so when you uh, disrupt that balance, some of the, some of the more difficult, sorry about that, my computer's doing this. Some of the more, more um, aggressive bacteria can overcome the weaker bacteria. And then that's what you, how you get this Clostroides difficile colitis. And again, this just shows that, that there is a statistically significant difference. Also, we looked at unplanned reoperation. So you do the surgery, but you're not planning on doing another one. 25% um, of patients had to go back to the operating room at least once in the first year. This didn't differ between treatment groups with a hazard ratio of 1.06. And not surprisingly, the most common types of reoperation were irrigation debridement. That means washing out and implant exchange and implant revision. These are the things that we do to try to get rid of bacteria. So these, most of these reoperations were done for infection. And again, the reoperation rates were not different across groups. Uh, the most common were implant exchange, irrigation, breedment, implant revision. They had enough events that we could do a statistical comparison. And you can see that there was, there was no difference between groups. Unfortunately, almost 30% had an oncologic event. That means they either had a uh, local recurrence or metastatic uh, recurrence. Um, and almost 13% died within the first year after surgery. These oncologic outcomes, such as uh, recurrence and mortality, were not different across groups. And the most common cause of mortality was disease progression. And again, this just shows the data between the treatment groups. Um, the hazard ratios are all, all just very, very close to one. So something that if it's one, then we're not, then the one group doesn't do better than another. So what is important about this study? Uh, we definitely believe that infections and avoiding complications from antibiotics are very important to patients and the healthcare system. So this is the outcome that we were looking at is something that's important to pretty much everybody that's involved. And we designed the study with all of the experts that helped us to reduce bias. And bias means that you're moving away from the truth because you have various factors that affect what you're doing in the trial, such as knowing what what uh, what your patient is given or knowing or being able to pick what you want for your patient or um, not following your patient and so you don't really know what happened. So we concealed randomization so that uh, nobody knew everything everybody was blinded. So the patients, the caregivers, and even the people that assess the outcomes, which was the adjudication committee were blinded and even the statistician, the data analysis did not know what group was what. Um, and we used objective study outcomes. So we had the adjudication committee, which was blinded, uh, uh, determine an infection objectively and blinded. So that if, if the committee decided there was an infection, then that's the closest you can get to the truth. And uh, we also interpreted the study results blinded. So we 
looked at the data and when it was when it was um, analyzed and it, we only saw group A, group B. We didn't know whether it was long duration or short duration. And then we decided how we were going to write the final paper based on if A is one day or if A is five days. So we did that ahead of time. So we didn't, we weren't, uh, we, there was no bias in the interpretation of the results. And then we broke the randomization code. Probably the most important uh, strength of this study is that we had multinational collaboration in orthopedic oncology. This is something that, as I mentioned, hadn't been done before, and it required a lot of work and sacrifice on the part of my colleagues and their research personnel to actually get the study done. We didn't lose a lot of patients to follow up. Um, aside from those that passed away, we only lost about 5% of patients, which is very good for a prospective trial over the course of a year. We included lots of patients that would be eligible, meaning uh, these results could be, um, could be extrapolated to a lot of patients that are being treated now or going forward. And we had a representation from diverse healthcare systems. So we had in Canada, we have more of a socialized healthcare system and the United States is more private or, or insurance-based. And then in, in South America, it was different. So we were able to run this trial in lots of different kinds of healthcare systems. So that again, we can extrapolate the results going forward to lots of different uh, hospitals around the world. So there were some challenges and there they were many in getting the study done, but we overcame them. But the things to think about were that uh, deciding an infection occurred is, is, all, is not straightforward sometimes. And um, the sites reported to us if they thought there was a, an infection, but there was also the problem with wound healing, so which can lead to an infection. So we had to have the adjudication committee review in depth many cases to decide in the end whether there was an infection or not. As that was the primary outcome, of course, that was critical. Um, so as I mentioned before, some of the sites, as Osteosarcoma is very rare, so they did, may not have had time or the ability to enroll as many patients as other sites. So um, this, this did result in a um, somewhat of an imbalance in the number of patients in each group because true randomization should end up with an equal. However, um, because there were so many patients, 600, that the known and unknown variables were, or at least the known variables were equally matched. We didn't follow patients after a year. Uh, you can get an infection or called a late infection after one year. Why does that happen? Uh, well, the CDC doesn't think it's related to the operation. It could be related to bacteria that are in your system that are that when you brush your teeth or you get a cut, bacteria gets into your system and then it finds the implant and then it sets up shop there. So we did not follow patients after a year and we don't know if the antibiotic regimen would have affected that. And there were some wide confidence intervals, meaning um, we weren't the precise uh, difference between groups. The hazard ratio was 0.93, but it did have some room before and after one, meaning there's still a chance that we just didn't detect a difference. Um, but there was the absolute difference was 1.7%, which is compared to an overall of 15.9%, it's very small. And if you want to reach statistical significance with that, to find a difference of 1.7 being what we call statistically significant, you need thousands and thousands of patients. And in our field, we don't really feel that that would be necessary because the, the information that we have now should be enough to help you make a decision and to do a trial of thousands of patients. You can see this trial took six and a half years of enrollment. 
um, thousands of patients would take, you know, more than most of the time that we're actually in practice. So um, this is the best that we could do uh, within our field. So the key findings of the PARITY trial that we did not demonstrate a benefit of, of a five-day regimen of antibiotics, intravenous cephalosporins, compared to 24 hours in reducing surgical site infections after uh, the surgery to remove a sarcoma, a surgical resection, and endoprosthetic reconstruction. However, there was a significantly higher risk of clinically serious antibiotic-related complications if you were randomized to the five-day regimen. So our message to clinicians is that, that uh, when they're writing post-operative orders for the stay in the hospital, they uh, can consider the uncertainty, the benefits. So we don't really know if antibiotics help, but we certainly didn't get any evidence to show that they did. And there is relative confidence in the harm, that meaning that we know there's a significantly higher risk for antibiotic-related complications. So I would like to acknowledge these are the sites that participated in Canada. Uh, I have two slides of American sites because they were very, very active. So um, this is the first slide and this is the second. And we're very grateful for our American uh, collaborators and working together with them internationally. Uh, these are the sites that participated internationally. And uh, just as an end note, uh, these are pictures of um, I and my team have we traveled around the world to conferences and to different sites to uh, ensure the trial is going well. But at the same time, we, we develop friendships and there's a, a very unique bond between surgeons that take care of, of patients that have challenging problems. We really try to help each other through the processes and to learn from each other and to make, uh, to improve our care of our patients. So these are just some pictures of us having fun, sorry, and learning from each other um, and basically becoming friends. So it's almost brought an international circle of people very close together and, you know, uh, it was, it's probably the most enjoyable part of this kind of research is working with people that speak many different languages, but we all speak the same languages of, of helping our patients. So the parity trial was published in January of this year in GEM Oncology. And so you can, it's actually full uh, open access. So you don't have to have a library um, uh, registration to, to, to pull the paper. This is the first, uh, this is what it looks like. You can download a visual abstract or an editorial, um, and there's also quite a bit of supplemental con uh, content. And just for fun, we thought we'd show the authorship list. So these are the these are the basically hundreds of people that participated and contributed to the study. They all have um, they are what we call indexed on PubMed, meaning they they get credit for actually being part of the study. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Gert. That was, it was like a cliffhanger until the end. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. When I presented it uh, initially to our society, no one had seen the data except uh -huh. for, you know, the writing committee. So it was, I, it was pretty exciting Yeah. after all those years. <laughs> That's amazing. And, um, and also amazing enrollment, 600 patients is yeah. impressive around the Thank world. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Um, so um, please, if you have any questions, feel free to put them in the Q&A. And then I think our panelists have some questions. Is there a reason why the study focused on lower extremity reconstruction um, instead of upper extremity? 
very good question. Um, yes, we looked into the in the upper extremity. Uh, the infection rate is actually much much lower than in the lower extremity. Um, you can get an infection in the upper extremity, but um, the the risk is is so low that that there's not there's nowhere near as much um, I guess overall stress about it. Um, we did consider that, but the event rate is so low, which is good. Uh, why is that? Um, Part of it is probably the larger surgery in the lower extremity, um, the uh, the bacteria that hang out on the skin and in the groin and in the leg are different than in the sh in the shoulder region, and they tend not to be shoulder tend not to be as much of an issue. So um, it, the steering committee just you know of course all these things came up. There's a great question, and and the steering committee decided that there wasn't enough clinical evidence to include upper extremity. And then. Um... Ryan, did you have a question? Uh, yeah, I do. So my question is, um, is uh, does it make a difference whether it's an oral or IV antibiotic? Good question. So we do know that intravenous antibiotics um, have better what we call penetration of the tissue. It goes right into your bloodstream, goes right to the surgical site. Um, when you when you have oral antibiotics, uh, there's a period of time where it's in your stomach and then it gets absorbed and then it gets, you can actually, um, it, it doesn't have as rapid or intense um, accumulation at, at the surgical site. So um, at the time of surgery, for sure, when the risk is highest for bacterial contamination, uh, I would say that intravenous antibiotics would, would be standard of care um, across the board. Some people discharge patients on oral antibiotics, um, again, because they're so scared of infection. Um, there is some discussion, if you already have an orthopedic infection, can you be treated only with oral? And there was a recent study published in the New England Journal that felt that maybe you didn't need to have intravenous, but this is for people that already have infections. So um, I, intravenous antibiotics have higher risk for complications, but they also are much more impactful at the time that you actually need to have them. Um, you know, Dr. Gert, I remember actually Dylan had, because he did have to be on antibiotics, I remember for an extended period of time, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. he actually had those great balls that mm -hmm. you, you know, since most patients have port that you can yeah, yeah. self-administer at home. Yeah. So yeah. I know you mentioned some patients didn't finish um, all their doses because they were discharged yeah, yeah. for five days, but yeah, yeah. I don't know if this particular drug, the cefazolin, is available in that format, but... I don't yeah. know, was that something or is that? Yeah, you could you could have done that, though not all our patients had ports because there are some bone sarcomas that aren't treated with chemotherapy. And so it would have it would have been, you know, only selected for some patients that had a port. Um, I think that that's a reasonable possibility. It's just it just couldn't have been, it's, it wasn't what we call real life or pragmatic that, you know, to arrange for a couple of doses of antibiotics at home would just never happen in real life. Right. I uh, mean, meaning outside of the trial and um, unless you had an infection, then you have, you have long-term antibiotics, then if you either get a pick line or a port so you can get antibiotics at home. Does that answer the question? It's a good question. Um, it's just the design of the trial was meant to be, well, we, the word we use is pragmatic. So it's yeah. not so much of an experiment as, as what happens in real life if you prescribe one day? What happens in real life if you prescribe five days? Yeah. Well, and especially now that we know that the 24 hours is sufficient. Um, yeah. 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 Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 
All right, great. Um, the next question was, what are ways that um, you can minimize antibiotic resistance? Great question. Um, I guess the simplest answer is don't prescribe antibiotics unless they're needed. So it, this unless they're needed is a pretty broad expression. Um, if you if a patient has an infection and it's obvious that they're infected and there's a bacteria that you've been able to culture that you, you know you can treat with antibiotics and then the patient should get antibiotics. But a lot of doctors give antibiotics just because um, they're worried about something that's going to happen. And so um, if around the world we said, okay, you know, we really need to steward our antibiotic prescription. If our governments or regulating bodies said, okay, we're going to review your antibiotic use um, every year, I think that there would be less of an issue. So the resistance develops because you give too much antibiotics, you give them for too long, um, and you give too, too many different kinds all at the same time so that the bacteria, you know, they, they really start figuring out how to get around it. So um, in the United Kingdom, they stopped using cefazolin because of this C. diff problem. And that they actually won't let the surgeons use cephalosporins there. So, um, so they have less C. diff. It has to come from the government. Um, it has to come, you know, so we are allowed as doctors to pretty much do what we want. Um, as it, we all believe we're doing the right thing, but there's nobody, you know, we wouldn't, we're not regulated in that way. Hmm. Um, so kind of following up on that, because I, I, I know it, there are some other issues, like, for example, Dylan had some allergies to certain antibiotics. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. they were always mm -hmm. kind of trying to figure out, though, again, yeah. like clindamycin was, yeah. I think, actually the one that was used most yeah. frequently. Yeah. So I am curious, and maybe this will be like a future study, but um, yeah. like type of, like, what is the standard for the type of, I mean, you'd mentioned cefazolin, though, I don't think, yeah. Yeah. I don't remember yeah. that one ever. Yeah being right. in our arsenal. And so yeah, yeah. what class of antibiotics work best? And are you kind yeah. of looking for a broad spectrum antibiotics or something that's more that you know works specifically on these infection sites in the- Right, and that's a really good question because it wasn't just the standard bacteria that we were finding in the study. Um, so most orthopedic infections, certainly not all are, but most are staphylococcus. There are either staphylococcus epidermidis or staphylococcus um, one of those stuff. So I'm totally blank. Anyways, it's stuff. And and so they have uh, they are susceptible to cephalosporins. And cephalosporins is basically like it's like penicillin, but way much more developed. Um, and so so these those are the best antibiotics for those bacteria. Um, also, uh, in a, they also, so cephalosporins also have a broader spectrum. They actually have uh, impact against gram negative, which is staph or gram positive. So it has a reasonably good spectrum. It's not as broad as some other ones, but cephalosporins are considered uh, very, fairly broad. And we, we did uh, our, not us, but our uh, colleagues at McMaster did a survey of North American surgeons um, that do hip and knee replacement and ask them, you know, what antibiotic do you use? And 95% use cephalosporins. Mm -hmm. So as, as a pre-op or intra-op dose, that is the standard of care. I prescribe clindamycin if the patient has a true penicillin allergy. It does have really good absorption in bone, um, but it doesn't, the spectrum's not quite as good as cephalosporins. 
Um, did you and the other investigators find that patients were hesitant to consenting to this study, knowing that they could be randomized to receive less antibiotics? Mm -hmm. Good question. Very good question. Um, I think it varied by site. Uh, so at our site, we had 90% acceptance. Um, I'm trying to remember the reasons. You know, most people are like, yeah, you know, you just consented somebody to rearranging the anatomy of their leg, and then you ask them for one more consent. And, you know, for them, it's, it's so small compared to what you're actually doing. Um, I, I do believe that the patients that declined are the ones that wanted more. So there were some sites, and I think it's, it is different. So as we said, different healthcare systems, United States, the patients, you know, want, they're paying for their care, so they want everything. And in Canada, you know, socialized, and they don't have an issue related to, to um, you know, they're paying for it, so they want the best. They're just happy to get care because, you know, they don't have to pay for it. And it's, you know, in Canada, we have excellent health care. So um, I think that's why we had not as much of an issue. There were some patients that didn't want five days because my standard of practice is one day. So, I mean, this was before the trial. So they all ask, you know, what, what would you do? And so some of them said, well, I don't want five days. So uh, overall, the, the consent was most sites did very well with patients agreeing to participate. Um, and so it just, we particularly had a really good, good uh, experience. I find that patients in general are really interested in participating in research, which is great because if we don't do research, we can't improve the care of patients. Can you imagine if the uh, COVID vaccine, you know, if people just didn't want to participate in those trials, where would we be now? You know, so, um, it were, it's it, the patients have to be comfortable. I don't, there's no way you're not pushing them into anything, but for the most part, um, the ones that I've worked with feel that they want to give back to the healthcare system. So good question. It's always a challenge because, you know, I know that I know both arms are safe. I mean, I, I thought five days was pretty safe, but obviously I don't, maybe not now. And, uh, any, any patient that I enroll in a trial, I'm comfortable with all of the arms. I know that there, you know, that there's nothing that I know of at the time that's going to make a difference as far as their safety. Um, what's the antibiotic protocol for uh, treating surgical site infections? So um, what you do is if you have an infection, you most likely you're going to need surgery. So we would go in and we would culture the tissue to see what bacteria is there and then direct the treatment based on the bacteria. In the interim, you would probably get either a cephalosporin or a vancomycin, which is a very strong antibiotic against um, gram positive, which is what you're thinking it's most likely going to be. And then once you get the culture results, you decide what to go do from there. So, and, and if it is a true surgical site infection, like the implant is infected, then the surgery will involve a lot of uh, removing of the implant. You put cement in, and then you'd probably need several weeks of intravenous of those antibiotics. So once you have a deep infection, you know, that's when you, you say, okay, we really need to be aggressive now because something happened. And the patient needs aggressive treatment. We really want to save the leg, uh, or in this case, leg or arm. In other cases, uh, our job is to, you know, we always tell the residents, we save a life, save a limb, and give them good function. So obviously, function is very important, but you want to save their life, you want to save their limb, and then you want them to be happy with what they have left. Um, I saw that you had um, colitis on one of the sides, and is yeah. the one who ended up having that as like a complication of long term? Yeah. 
use. Yeah. Uh, just yeah. how long does it take for your microbiome to like fully recover after this disruption of long-term yeah. antibiotic use? That's a great question. I, th I believe it could take a year or two until you, you stop relapsing from C. diff. Um, and I guess it depends on, on how, how you can be treated. We, you know, we haven't, we, we do treat C. diff, um, but if you have other complications related to chemotherapy or surgery, you may have to go off them for, for the treatment for a while. But I, I would say the microbiome will, will take a long time, one to two years to recover. Um, Dr. Gurr, I'm curious, this seemed just like a very successful trial effort in terms of how many sites enrolled and physicians mm -hmm. participated. Mm -hmm. And it being the first one, does this kind of set you up to mm -hmm. be able to do another type of study like this? Yeah, great so question. Structure set up. Yeah. yeah and we what's have, your next question, I guess? That you yes, we have started another trial um, and a lot of the sites are participating. Um, we did a, a, a Delphi process, which is a consensus-based process a few years ago, where we asked uh, everybody that we knew around the world in our field and patients in different centers, what is, what's a research question that is important to you that can affect our practice and that we can answer? And there's a long, the process took, I think, 18 months. It was, and the last step was an in-person meeting. Um, and then we published the results. And the number one priority was um, for soft tissue sarcoma, so not, not osteosarcoma, um, how, how to follow patients, um, how often should we see them, should we do chest x-rays, CAT scans, because soft tissue sarcoma is different than bone sarcoma, it doesn't respond to chemotherapy. So you can have metastases, but knowing, them, knowing about them is not really very helpful. Um, but we still follow our patients very intensely because we're used to that with the bone sarcomas. So um, that was the number one question. So we started that trial. It's called the Surveillance After Extremity Tumor Surgery Trial. And we have uh, 21 sites that are open so far. And we're, we don't need as many sites because soft tissue sarcomas are more common than bone sarcoma. So each site will have more soft tissue than bone. Um, and so we've enrolled about 115 patients so far. So it's not 600, but uh, it, we were doing pretty well. And I do think that, um, you know, parity was successful, but there were many days and weeks and months where it was very difficult. The challenges did not seem like they were, um, they were surmountable. They were, you know, I, 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 there were many days that, you know, I didn't know if it was going to actually finish. And so the same thing with the current trial, we have tough days, you know, or tough weeks and we just keep pushing because there's no, there's no option. You know, if we don't do these trials and I retire at some point and nothing happens, then, then you're just, there's not nothing to help the patients because we're just going to keep doing what we're doing. And, and as opposed to maybe making things better. Um, what is the risk of infection if a patient has other types of surgeries like lung surgery? Uh, it would be much lower. It, I think we're, we're trying to tease out the risk factors, like really what causes infection. But in general, the more complex, the longer the surgery, um, the higher the risk for infection. So thoracic surgery, when you're resecting, you know, met metastases or a rib, it's fairly short. The other thing is we put in implants, uh, you know, these big metal implants, they are just a, a magnet for infection. If you're not putting an implant in, the risk is pretty low. So I would, I would say that if you're having a metastatic, you know, if you have a nodule in your lung and you're having it taken out, it's got to be less than one percent. It's not very common. 
Yeah, the, the infection risk is pretty unique to our specialty, to our patient population. And I think that's why that the research question resonated with so many people around the world and they were willing to participate in trying to figure out the best way to prevent them. Um, so are there, you know, I mean, I think they're like coatings and stuff like that, but are there different materials and now with like 3D printing that are, are just less susceptible to infection? Yeah, there, there are some implants that are silver coated or some are trying to antibiotic coat the implants. Um, the evidence for, for that being effective is, is, is just not there. Um, a lot of people believe, you know, they'll swear up and down. That's the answer. And then, um, but there's no evidence to support it. Um, I do think that the, the, the risk for infection is so multifactorial that the implant surface probably is not the key factor in reducing infections. They're also more, more uh, expensive. And so certain healthcare systems will not support them. And um, yeah, they're only available in Europe. So I, I don't know, it just hasn't, the FDA is just not comfortable with them. And if the FDA is not comfortable, then, then I'm not. But it's a good question, like, what can we do? Do we do something on the implant? Um, maybe that's the answer, but we haven't found it yet. Okay, next trial. Next trial with like a yes, yes. Someone else's <laughs> career. I'm, we're trying to teach people how to do these things so that, they, you know, that this becomes part of what we do as a society, as opposed right. to just, you know, one center. And I think it's happening. It's working. It's going well. Yeah, well, especially, as you said, for rare disease, it's otherwise mm -hmm. it's hard to get the numbers to actually have something with statistical significance. So thank you so much, Dr. Gert, for spending an hour with us today. Um, My pleasure. And for your commitment to osteosarcoma patients everywhere and making it better. Um, more information on this episode and all osteobites can be found on YouTube, our YouTube channel, on our website, mibagents.org, and your favorite place to find your podcast. And if you did register for this session, you will get an email with all the links mentioned today, um, including just a link to the paper, um, Dr. Gert, that you mentioned. And we can also share information about the other trial as well. Um, next week, we are gonna be talking with Elena Gerasimov from Kids Be Cancer about compassionate use of investigational drugs. She will give an overview of the compassionate drug um, use program, compassionate use program, and explain how to apply for experimental drugs and discuss the resources available to both patients and doctors throughout the application process. Thank you again to Dr. Gert and our panelists, Vicki, Andrew, and Ryan, and to our sponsor, BTG Specialty Pharmaceuticals. And thank you all for joining us today. We hope to see you next week. Bye.